Welcome to the Weather Insights Podcast. I'm meteorologist Scott Pitney along with meteorologist Jeff Lindner. Jeff, how's it going? Yes, sir. Doubleheader tonight, like the NFL. <laughs> Doubleheader. So, yeah, if you watched the last podcast yeah. and I was wearing the same shirt <laughs> oh, yeah. and Jeff was wearing the same shirt, well, there's a reason yeah. for it because we are doing two podcasts in one night with uh, two of my favorite people, uh, my, my co-workers from the great city of Victoria. Tonight we have... Chief Meteorologist McClevio Perez. Yeah. You know, that and a dime can get you a cup of coffee. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Well, hey, Chief Mac, thanks for joining us tonight. Really appreciate you being on the show. How are things going? Going well, Scott. Thanks for the invitation. Obviously, I I know Jeff Linder there next to you because uh, uh, he did a lot of work during Harvey, and I was in Corpus Christi covering Harvey, so... Uh, we, we were watching your your rain gauges, and when they said fifty inches, I'm going no, uh, and that was that was that was it, man. And uh, you know, I remember I don't know if you were there, Jeff, but um, I think it was Allison, mm. the tropical storm that flooded all of downtown. Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. That's when I learned that even a tropical storm can give you a whole mess of trouble. And and I, you know, I I I love Houston, but you got some problems. <laughs> Well, that's the first one. That's that's an understatement. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Where do your we start? Ri- that's a whole other podcast. Your, your rivers are now your freeways. Yes, sir. Path of least resistance. Yep. Number two, everybody wants to have a property with a bayou in the back mm-hmm. until it rains. Mm-hmm. Uh, and number three, uh, you've played concrete from... Lamarck all the way to Conroe and where do you think all that water is going right through you so um, you know like I said I've been watching the Houston issue for quite some time oh oh and my my dearest friend in the whole world uh, lived uh, in uh, Clear Lake Uh, so I would go visit him and I said you know in the old maps of Houston this was a swamp yeah you know (laughs) why are you building houses here uh, but, you know, it's uh, the way it goes. Yeah. Yes, well, sir. The, go for the, it, Scotty. The, the good <laughs> news is we're sending a lot of that development down y'all's way towards Victoria. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, I remember, I remember when Highway 59 was not under construction. Right. It was like 1968, I think. It was the only time that it was not under construction. So the Southwest Freeway has just been a mess ever since. Yeah. Yeah. I think the construction for the uh, part of the Gulf Freeway south of downtown Houston has been in a construction since 1968 in yeah. some way, shape, or form. So, yeah, yeah absolutely. It's a big city. Yeah, it never, the infrastructure never keeps up with the growth. So, right. Um, so, Matt, I was telling Jeff just a little bit about your, your career, um, but maybe let's start there. How did you develop your interest in weather and where did it take off from there? And tell us about the market market you've worked in uh, since then. Well, you know, I, I, I was very lucky uh, that I got into radio when I was in high school. My boss, my mentor, kicked my rear end and sent me to Austin to the University of Texas. At that time, I didn't know where Austin was. I grew up down in the valley. Um, But when I was in Austin, I got a job doing radio there at KDBC and the TV, the radio thing then said, well, you're here, you may as well go to television. And and so my first TV job was uh, in Austin 
But I was a journalism student thinking that I needed to be, uh, you know, a professional at writing and reasoning and covering stories. And uh, John Cones, God bless him wherever he is, uh, decided that he wanted to be the sportscaster, not the weather guy. So they looked at me and they said, you do the weather. And I said, who, me? Um, and uh, they said, yeah, you. And I'm going, but I'm a, I'm a journalist. You know, I, I'm, I write stories. I cover, you know, events. No, you're going to do weather on the weekends. Well, I fell in love with it. And uh, a lot of people started commenting because, you know, it's funny. If you go out and do a story, I mean, you really bust your butt to do the story, to get the video, to get the interview, to put it together. And when you play it, the story is a story. You are not the story. Well, all of a sudden being on TV and camera and doing, you know, chatting with the anchor, talking about the weather and the uh, Lake Buchanan and the Highland Lakes and all that stuff. I, uh, they said, hey, you're, you're funny uh, on the weather. We like, you know, talking, you talking. And so I said, well, that's a very interesting situation. So when I finished my uh, journalism degree, I convinced uh, my next employer to send me to AM uh, to study meteorology. So I did my first year, and my boss uh, was kind enough to, to hold off putting me on the air. He had a kind of a long-term plan. And uh, I did my first year in Met uh, at the university. So I swing both ways. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, <laughs> it, it I'm used afraid to, be, to I ask. Could, it used Not to be anymore. that on, on Thanksgiving, my team would win, right? Back yeah. in the days. Yeah. Uh, the, back in the days of the Southwest Conference. Yeah. Um, but then uh, my boss in San Antonio said, hey, you got to get a tip. You got to come back to work. So I went back to work and I had bills to pay. So I went to work in San Antonio and uh, I thought I had died and gone to heaven. I mean, I, it was a great town. It was uh, back in the 70s. I had a Cutlass Supreme. I was doing great stuff. I did uh, five years there, and uh, it went extremely well. So well that we were as a CBS affiliate. Everybody wondered what the heck's going on in San Antonio because we were ginormous back in the days uh, before cable. And um, CBS Inc. called me and said, we uh, would like to take you uh, to work in Los Angeles. Are you interested? And I'm going, am I interested? Hell yeah, but I've got a contract. And I said, well, that's okay. We'll talk to your boss. So I backed off. And because it was the network and they were an affiliate calling, the boss calls me and says, well, they tell me they want to take you to L.A. And I'm like, you don't really want to go, do you? Uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, I do. <laughs> well, you'd be a number in the crowd. Nobody's going to know you. Everybody loves you here. And I'm like, ah, but I, you know, it's my shot at the big league, so I got to take it. Um, so, uh, I moved to LA, um, and, um, uh, and, and, and you guys know the, this problem, you know, not every university offers the MET program. So I'm down in Gary, California, and I live on this side of town. UCLA is on that side of town. There was no way I could get across town, uh, to finish the degree there. So I took a couple courses here and there and, Eventually, like so many other TV guys, I finished it out at Mississippi State, uh, did, doing my third year there uh, in geosciences. So 
but I've been doing weather since it was in black and white. So uh, it was a long time. In fact, uh, Linda, you, you probably know uh, uh, Troy Kimmel in Austin. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yes, well, sir. Troy grew up watching me and I grew up watching him because mm -hmm. he's from San Marcos and his mother used to watch me. And when I was visiting in Austin, I watched him because, you know, I thought he did a fine job. And so um, so I did. Uh, I went out as third string to Los Angeles, went up to second string, went up the first string held it for eight years, went back down to second string and third string. And then I was a file cabinet and then I was out the door. You know, I mean, it, was, it took 18 years, but uh, I did CBS for 18 years and it was uh, CBS Inc. So, I mean, the, the, all the big dogs would come through there and I met them all. And I was very fortunate because I started off as a very young man uh, sitting next to Connie Chung. And, mm. you know, she was a legend. And uh, who the heck is this guy sitting next to me with the funny name? So, um, uh, but it worked out. And we, 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 you know, we chilled out and we blended and it worked really well. But uh, in um, 98, uh, CBS was bought out by Viacom. I don't know if you remember that, but Viacom came in and bought the whole enchilada. I mean, yeah. everything. Yep. And what do they first do in corporate buyouts? They slash the budget and right. they slash the staff. And so about eight of us, quote unquote, legends were all out in the same week. And so that was a sign from God that I had to go back to Texas. <laughs> so I grabbed my kids and grabbed a U-Haul trailer and back from Beverly and uh, came back to Texas. So San Antonio has been my home for spiritual home, but I was in Corpus for 12 years. And then, uh, you know, I just joined the staff here in Victoria because I, I retired and I couldn't handle it. I couldn't stand it. I, I was bored to tears. I read 10 books. I painted the garage. I said, I, ca I can't be sitting here doing nothing. I have to be engaged and involved. And so I, I, I called, uh, you know, our management, which I happen to know from Corpus. And they said, absolutely, let's do it. Come on. And so I'm, I'm here I am. So I'm back to work. Theoretically, I should be sitting on a rocking chair in the back porch, but that's not me. That's not me. I'll work till, till the last breath, you know. Well, so that's how I wound up in, in Corpus um, and in Victoria. Yeah. If you've painted your garage, that's desperate times. You're, really, man. You're, <laughs> oh, the, wor the worst part is having to take everything out of the garage, yeah. right? Because yeah. I heard, I heard that some people put their car in the garage. <laughs> no, I didn't. No. I never saw that before. You know, is that what it's for? That? That's what it's for. No, I oh. thought it was to put all the old baby furniture and all that stuff. But um, anyway, uh, so. Um, so what out of those markets which ones as far as a forecaster did you find more most interesting and why well i think for our discussion of what we're going to talk about i'm a, a strange bird first of all i'm half a journalist and i'm half a meteorologist and so i i believe i know writing about talking about the story of you know too many of our uh, our colleagues decided that they were going to get, they were going to baffle everybody with their brilliance. And so they're talking out all these technical terms and, you know, the vapor pressure going this way and the, uh, you know, all that's the TVS going that way. And, 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 you know, the people don't understand that. 
So you have to bring that technology and uh, translate it to the viewing public that they can understand. So for me, here's weird. This is the weirdest part. I went to do weather in a place where there's no weather for six months. Hmm. So, there, so what was the weather that we got for those summer months in the Mediterranean climate? Smog. So I got out there in the 80s. I became a smog expert because I started doing stories with uh, the AQMD, the Air Quality Management District. And I got real tight with those guys. And uh, I went to their seminars and I spoke to their scientists and they throw me some stuff to read up on. And, and I got pretty good at, at really forecasting. And you guys will know this, forecasting the amount of fog and how uh, smog rather and how far inland it would go. And it was just a measurement of the um, 500 millibar pressure on top of it, because if the, if the pressure was strong or, or high pressure would squeeze the marine layer out and it'd be sunny and 110 degrees. If, if the pressure was low, then the marine air would come in and go all the way to the foothills of the mountains. So I got pretty good at fog at smog. And then, you know, what is in smog? They say, well, it's a clean burning engine. There's no such thing as a clean burning engine. The process of combustion takes something, oxidizes it, changes it to something else, and there's always leftover stuff. So the tail end of your car will emit bad stuff. So you don't believe me, do this for me tomorrow. Get in your garage, turn the car on, warm it up, and read your emails while it gets warm. Would you do that? <laughs> no, thank you. No, no, it's a stupid idea because all the carbon monoxide that comes out of your exhaust is, is being trapped in your garage. Well, what happens when you open the garage door? It goes into my yard, you know? And so I'm going, you know, so I knew that emissions from cars and we had 6 million cars uh, were polluting the environment when the inversion was so strong on top of us that the air would not uh, vertically move, uh, we were just breathing it. So I remember ozone action days, I reported them, I wrote on them, I'm very sensitive to them, I could smell. LA air back then would smell like Clorox, I swear, I swear to God. And between 82 and 98 when I left, the air got cleaner. You can go to LA today and see the mountains. When I got there, you couldn't because there was so much pollution in the atmosphere. So what did we do over those years that improved the air? Really only five or six things. One, we demanded uh, unleaded fuel. Why is it unleaded? Well, first of all, lead was added to the fuel in the thirties to make your car run better. They had no concern over what came out the tail end of your gas pipe, your exhaust pipe. They didn't care about that. Your car ran better. So we took the lead out. We now know today that there's no amount of lead that's going to be good for you anywhere. Your lead pencil, kids living along freeways where all the car exhaust is coming out of, we're getting lead in their bloodstreams. So yeah, lead's got to go, got to go. Number two, um, the catalytic converters, catalytic converters, the exhaust comes out of your engine, 
it goes through the catalytic converter. It could it it well it it, it converts it and tra traps some of those gases, and it it limits the amount of lead and sulfur dioxide that comes out of the back end of your car. We did that and that and that and. Uh, what was the other? Oh, oh, this one. See, I could fix Houston's air in about a month. If you guys would let me, you guys let me, I will go fix Houston's air. You'll be able to see Pasadena. Promise. But the most important thing that I, I have agitated for all my life is what's called vapor recovery. All right. So you've got the gas station, you've got the, the tank underground, right? Well, when you go put your nozzle into your car, when you were kids, you would see the fumes go like that, right? You would see, you could see that little, and they say, oh, look how cool. Those are volatile organic compounds that are coming off the gasoline, floating in the air. And where are they going from your air? To Mars? No, they're staying right here, depending on the weather. God bless you for having a sea breeze, the Texas uh, Gulf breeze blowing all the time. But if that stops for 10 minutes, you're dead, you know? And you've had ozone action days uh, where you had pollution because there's no wind at all. And when is the least amount of wind? When you're under high pressure, under extremely hot conditions, and the air is not going anywhere. So that vapor recovery assistance because the cap would go over the filler tube and it would suck the vapors back into the tank. So when the, the big 18 wheelers come to load gasoline, they would exchange that volume of air for that volume of liquid. And so we trapped so much volatile organic compounds that would get up in the air uh, and the air got better. If we did that nationwide tomorrow, we, we would be rocking, rocking. Yeah but they're, they don't want to do it, you know? So, so that's why I'm pretty sensitive to air pollution. So, so we get to climate change and, you know, I'm not used to people calling, complaining and telling me what I can and cannot say, you know, I'm a, I'm a journalist, you know, if I write it, it's because I believe it to be true. So, you know, I started talking about it back in LA uh, when I got to San Antonio, I, I would talk about climate change and all that, but people would go, Huh? Uh, I'd get nothing. I'd be like, hello, uh, this stuff in the air, it's bad, it's bad. Um, so when I got to Corpus, I started talking about it. And it being an oil town, I got some nasty blowback. But I said, damn the torpedoes. I'm not here to make people friend friendly. I, I have to tell them the truth. Because that, as a journalist, is my job. And, uh, and then here in uh, Victoria, I've done a few things, said a few things. And um, and I've had some blowback, but I'm sorry. I, uh, in fact, the county judge called me to tell me, well, you know, Mac, it's not always human uh, uh, intervention that's causing this. And I'm sorry, I'm sorry, judge. I've been doing this for 30 years. It is human activities. 70% of our pollution and our heating and our carbon dioxide comes from transportation. The other 30% comes from factories, refineries, and anybody who's emitting exhaust fumes in the air. Oh, and, and here's the other one. I did 150 stories with the EPA. Uh, that's when the EPA had respect. Now they have maligned their name so bad that the EPA stands for anti-business. They're anti-this, they're anti- No, they're just trying to protect you. 
I mean, the uh, you ever heard the term brownfield? Okay. No. In the in the pollution world, uh, that's a big deal. For example, let's say you and Scott has a factory making springs, and they make springs with uh, zinc. And after the process of making the spring, they throw the zinc into the ground because it's, yeah, they don't need it. It's a byproduct. Well, now you've polluted that ground. So I, the EPA, come and say, hey, Scott, you all messed up here, man. You, you let, you've got dirt and it's polluted. And so you're going to have to pay a fine to clean it up. So what does Scott do? Because he's such a smart guy. He goes bankrupt. He's out, bankrupt, sorry, can't do it. I'm closing up shop, I'm leaving. So then what happens to the dirt after Scott leaves? It's brownfield. You can buy it, but you've got to clean the dirt before you can use it because it's polluted ground. Now, just yesterday, I wrote a story that I'm going to put on the web because they kept talking about earthquakes in Texas. And I said, no, there's no earthquakes in Texas. Well, they reported uh, 2.3 and a 3.5 and a 5.6. I'm going, no, no, no. You need plate tectonics and you need a fault line for there to be a real quake. You have fracking problems. And they go, whoa, how do you know that? Oh my God. So here we go again. When you do hydraulic fracturing, you drill a well, you put high pressure water and chemicals to separate the sand and the shale. Then you release the pressure and all that fluid comes up to the ground. And as it comes to the ground, you separate the fluids and it's a toxic soup. So once you get the oil and the gas out of it, you take that water and you put it back into the ground. Well, what do you think that's doing to the limestone formations down there? I mean, where you look at where all the earthquakes, oh, the University of Texas, only in, uh, where are we? In, in I think 19, 2017, finally built a network of seismographs to properly track this stuff. And where are the uh, epicenters? Where the, where the fracking's going on? Permian Basin, the Eagleford Shale, the Burnett up in Dallas. I mean, I mean, what, what bothers me is I, I say, folks, don't get used to this. There's no such thing as an ec Texas earthquake. I said it's a Texas quote unquote earthquake. Yeah, stuff's falling apart down there because we are inducing that movement by putting in high pressure water and taking it out and putting it back in. Can you imagine what's that doing to this stalactite that took a thousand years to develop? And a little bitty carb, you know, the 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 carb, the uh, calcium in the water supply is coming. Have you ever been to uh, 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 Natural Bridge Caverns in New Braunfels? I have. Yep. Awesome. You go down there. What do you see? Caverns, water flowing, stalactites, stalagmites, uh, uh, limestone formations that have been there for thousands of years. Well, imagine flooding that with a you know hundred thousand gallons of of water to pressurize it to get the, the oil out. I understand we need oil. I'm not anti-oil. I'm just going, be real. You know, don't, don't, don't blow smoke up my, you know what, and tell me <laughs> it's raining. You know, I mean, uh, it, it is being caused by fracking and whether they like it or not, that's the fact. 
and 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 so I did that story. I'm putting it on the uh, website and crossroadstoday.com. Anyway, I can talk for hours, guys. I can I can see it. Sorry. <laughs> no, go, no. Go ahead. No, ask no, me the question. No, you're good. You're you're staying within the geosciences realm, Max. So that's right. yeah, it's close enough. But let's let's do shift gears a little bit. And I was telling Jeff before uh, before you came on, I said uh, Matt called a shot like back in May before, or maybe it was just June, right around June first. June first. Yeah. Well, officially, but unofficially, we you know you and I have a yeah. lot of conversations, and your number for name storms was twenty two, I believe. That's right, twenty two. And here we are on uh, R, September. R. Yeah, here we are on September twenty eighth. And we're currently at 17. Sure. <laughs> That's we're A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, Q, R. Yeah. 18. 18. We're at 18. Okay. 18. Thank you. And so, um, and Jeff and I on a previous podcast, we talked about, you know, what what's because the big argument was we've got El Nino, which is supposed to bring the number down, but we've got a very warm Atlantic. So right now it appears that the warm water is winning as far as the numbers. But as Jeff mentioned, well, I won't speak for you, but, oh, by, by, <laughs> but Jeff, it's, it's Jeff. better when you say it. Then I don't have to <laughs> no, no. go ahead and, and, and say, well, well they're, they're puny storms. I, is that a, well, is that a technical? Well, there, there's a couple of things here. One okay. is, I mean, we've named some stuff this year that that lasted six hours. Okay, that that's that's okay. And then the second thing is, El Nino really had. If you look at the Gulf of Mexico and the Caribbean, it's been quiet. All of the storms this year have been out in the Atlantic, um, mainly up in the subtropic latitudes. Very few down in the tropics, the deep tropics. And so, El Nino has sort of done what it's supposed to do. Right. Um, but I tell you what, with these numbers and, and, you know, naming and it's somewhat a little bit more subjective nowadays than it was years ago. And, and we name a lot more stuff now with satellites that we wouldn't have named in the 1940s. Um, they wouldn't have, they wouldn't have seen it. Exactly. And, you know, some of the stuff this year, I mean, even if you look at today, you got Rena, which is yep. Rita's replacement. And you got uh, uh, Philippe, is it Felipe or Felipe? Felipe. 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 Okay. Yeah, Felipe. Which yeah. is a just a, well. Confused. It's, it's, it's a, a trash. <laughs> it's, it's trash. It's a, it's a confused mess. Yes. Well, but, but you see, but, but there, Mike, uh, Linder, uh, Jeff, um, the, the guys who do the professional forecasting were saying the El Nino was going to cause such a big, strong shear over North America uh that we weren't going to get anything i mean you remember they came out with like seven storms and i'm going are you kidding me with the amount of heat that the atlantic has absorbed over the last 20 years you can't you can't say that i mean you you worked and i worked that, that year we ran out of letters right yeah. remember that one yeah um well, we've so done it a couple I, times now yeah a couple times. yeah and we've done it a couple of times with the 24 numbers so i'm going mm, in terms of i'm, I'm not gonna i mean i'm not crazy I know what I know, and if I don't know, I'm not going to climb out on a branch. But I said, first of all, the shear is not going to be nonstop 100 miles an hour for six months. Right. It's going to vary. It's going to go up and down. The 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 what do you call it? The the, the jet will come in. The jet will come out. But if anything in that hot water takes off, it's going to 
take off as a big storm. But you're absolutely right. The El Nino did suppress the strength of these storms. But my concern is that we were going to get a couple of fives, big fives. Um, and of course, you know, those are always problems. And, you know, and I have this question rhetorically for all of you guys in, in the weather world. I believe that we need to expand the Saffir-Simpson scale to a category six because of the following reason. Um, Rita or Ike were fives, but they came ashore. Okay. That's one level of, uh, what do you call that? Ace yeah. accumulated, mm-hmm. accumulated cyclone energy, cyclone energy. That's one level. That's one number. But then we had Maria in Puerto Rico. That was a five for like five days. That's a whole nother number of accumulated cyclone energy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so how do you, you can't compare the two. One was a, a five for a little bit. And the other one was a five for a week. So, I mean, that's a completely different level. But, you know, someday uh, some genius guy at the Weather Service will uh, will come up with a, a better way to, to handicap or to really calculate the amount of energy that was in that storm is what I'm saying. Well, I think some of the uh, social media crazies have already made a Category 6. <laughs> that well, maybe, maybe... Maybe I gave them the idea or maybe they gave me the idea. I'm not well, sure, but I think I think it's valid when you look at at the end of the year when you have to assess the storm and you guys have to have those numbers, you know, how strong was it and how long did it last and how far did it travel? How many days was it a five? As we saw that a couple of years ago uh, where they were fives for like a week and I'm going, oh my God. And and then we haven't even started talking about the, the typhoons in the eastern in the in the Indian Ocean, they've had fives that have lasted for a week. So this is all part of the uh, the global atmosphere of the global oceans beginning to warm up. And you know, you know, we used to uh, do three meter depths of the ocean temperature, and now that that heat or the the heat is going down 10, 12 meters down. I mean, it's just they're getting warm I mean, we're, we're losing um reefs because of the warm water we saw the water in uh, in the keys of florida at a hundred degrees dude we gotta do something yeah you know i had a um somebody a social media follower when we were into the just getting into the heat and the drought and and she asked me she she says should we be concerned with the trends and I went back to, um, you know, records back to the 19, you know, to 1900. And it was, there was a very warm period uh, around you know, between 1910, 1915. You know, obviously no cars or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So how, because I, I know, Mac, you're, you're very yeah. much a, um, um, talk about global warming and things like that, but how do you explain those kind of oscillations that yeah. go back before cars and that kind of time frame? Uh, yes. First of all, our atmosphere, what we breathe every day. So 25% oxygen, 40, 50% nitrogen, and less than 1% carbon dioxide. <laughs> 
Less than 1%. Less than 1%. But that 1% of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is enough to make life habitable on our planet. Okay? Carbon dioxide is fundamental to life. I mean, us and the plants, photosynthesis. We breathe, they give it back to us. It's, it's, it's a, somebody was really smart when they figured that out. So if you take that 1% of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and you double it, what does that do to the temperature of the earth? And what I say to you, and I maintain, and I will until my last breath, the emissions from our cars and the emissions from our factories and the use of fossil fuels um, is the fundamental reason why we have doubled the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Now, here's the funny part, and you guys know this, the atmosphere is what, 10 to 15 miles deep. That's it. All of that crap we put in the air is between here and the top of Mount Everest. It doesn't go to Mars, it doesn't go to space. It doesn't move out into uh, the, 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 the moon's lunar, it stays right here. So how long have we been burning carbon dioxide? 150 years. And so now, and, and, and you guys, I'm older than you guys. When I was a kid, everybody in China, because they had the communist uh, party over there and it was an undeveloped country. Everybody in China drove a bicycle to go to work. I don't know if you remember that. And it, you remember pictures of the rickshaws and all that. Mm. And I, I'm not saying that was a good thing, but they did not emit pollution like they do today. People in India didn't have cars. Today, there's a billion point five people in China and they want a car. There's a billion point two people in India and they want a car too. Well, oh my God, if everybody's going to be driving, our pollution is going to go crazy and we don't get to drive a car. So when the U.S. was the biggest polluter on the planet, it was okay. Mother Nature would forgive us. Now, with everybody in the act, Mother Nature can't hold on. So it's very simple. It's very simple. Uh, we make our houses more efficient. Instead of four-inch thick walls, we go to six or eight inch thick walls. We, whatever air conditioning we use, we're more efficient with it. Uh, oh gosh, you guys, I gotta tell you this story. Okay, it's a true story. I have to because you'll appreciate it. So I'm working in LA. A friend of mine is a PR man for the uh, um, University of California system. And um, he calls me, he says, hey, we're going to have a press conference at the Hollywood Press Club. And, and the reason the Hollywood Press Club was there is so people could come do a story or a statement and the media was nearby because I could not go to University of California, Irvine. Okay, it was a two-hour drive. And he said, what's happening? He said, two of our professors are getting a Nobel Prize. Really? That's awesome. Who are they and what for? Um, uh, Dr. So-and-so and Dr. Carlos Molina. He said, who is this guy? Oh, he's from Mexico City. He's an atmospheric scientist. And he calculated that ozone was eating up, uh, uh, our pollutants were eating up the ozone. Oh, yeah, I heard about that. So I went down to the press. I met 
Dr. Molina and his, pardon me, I can't remember the other guy's name. And they calculated that the chlorofluorocarbons out of hairspray and out of propellants and out of uh, the freon in your car was floating up to the top of the atmosphere. And there they were, eating, they were bonding with the ozone molecule, the O3, and they were chewing it up. Remember when we had the big scare of the ozone problem? Well, they got their Nobel. They had a meeting in 1992 or 93 in Montreal. They all said, well, there's a problem. These calculations are good. What's going on? What do we do? So, well, we just got to get rid of the hairspray bottles. We got to change from Freon to our 230-something to another refrigerant. And, and, then, uh, and then we don't do CFCs anymore. <clears throat> Pardon me. And we came up with the Montreal Protocols, which are now the worldwide standards. And science led the day and led the way. And now <clears throat> we don't use Freon anymore. And the ozone hole, top of the atmosphere, is healing up. Very simple. The Earth did not stop. That is where we are in climate change. But there are some people that don't want us to go there and, and you know who it is. And what I did during my days in, uh, I guess the nineties and why I was so adamant about it, we found the paper trail to the corporations who were paying PR companies to lie about the emissions. All right, it's the same customers. And, but I have proof, I can, I can show you the documents that said, uh, we don't think these numbers are good. Uh, we're not going to talk about it. Uh, we're not going to think about it. Uh, proceed as at will. So, you know, I'm getting mad that, okay, wait, 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 wait. So I can't breathe. I'm coughing while I'm gassing my car, but the guy who's making the gas isn't telling me the truth about what I'm breathing here. Okay. So we have a problem. So, um, so it has been a 40 year campaign to confuse the public, the world, and to pay off politicians. Oh, we'll never get a political solution out of this. They're all paid for. They're all bought. Bought and paid for. If they didn't get a gold Mercedes Benz, they got a trip to something or whatever. I, I, I will call out the U.S. Senate because there's 100 people in the U.S. Senate who have been paid off by uh, lobbyists, and they're not ever going to vote for something that solves our climate problem. You notice Europe they're doing a great job. Even British Petroleum out of Europe has done uh, uh, North Sea windmills. They've cut back. British Petroleum is, is really leading the pack on diversifying um, our energy. Um, but our American companies, nah, we're not going to do that. Nah, we don't care. Nah, we don't care. Hmm. Because those guys got more money than God, and they have the... I'm, I'm going to say it. I, you know, you can call me out if you want to. They don't have the ethics to admit what's going on, to admit what's true and what's false, and they don't have the cojones to say, "All right, let's figure this out. Let's do something that's not going to ruin the planet, uh, so that we can keep selling product forever." Hmm. And if they followed my path of diversification, they would be in the business forever. Can you imagine? Uh, an old oil well out there in Katy, Texas, 
just sitting there empty. You know what an orphan well is? An orphan well is something that played out. And they're supposed to plug them, but they forgot and they just left. So all those organics are coming out of the ground. And sometimes you can breathe them. I'll tell you where you can breathe them. If you're going on I-10 uh, by the 130 in Seguin, by the 130 bypass, you'll, you'll drive through there and you'll smell something different. Uncapped oil wells and somebody's not doing their job. So all I'm saying that if every roof was not made of asphalt paper, was made with solar panels, all this would go away and we wouldn't have a problem and we could breathe for the next hundred thousand years. So all I'm saying is that if you read what I read, if you studied what I studied, if you've seen the trends and what I see the trends, we're screwed. Next year, I'm going to predict this right now. Ready, ready, Scott? Long term. Ready? Yep. Somewhere along the equator, and we were and we did it this year. We're going to record 130 land temperature. Okay. You ready? Write that down. Write it down. I've got it, Mr. Linder. Mr. Linder, write that down. I got because you know I I know that you are a true scientist, and you will understand what I'm talking about. I'm just talking about when the uh, subtropical high, which is now going to uh, South America, moves back up on top of us. It's going to be reloaded with more carbon dioxide, and more carbon dioxide is going to make it for a hotter planet. And that's my prediction for the future. If we stopped tomorrow, we would never go back to where it was in the past, but we might last a little bit longer. Somebody said, well, is the earth going to die? Oh, no. The earth is going to be fine. We're going to die. We're going to be in an uninhabitable lands where the third world is going to run to the first world uh, as climate refugees because they couldn't grow any food. I mean, we're talking the whole equator all the way around the planet, Libya, Ethiopia, all the way around. Even the, the Amazon is having trouble. Even Central America was a rainforest can't grow crops because they don't get fresh water. They're surrounded by oceans, but they don't get fresh water. The, the islands of the Caribbean, the ABC islands, Abacus, uh, what are the ABC islands? You know, the, the three the three little bitty islands up down by Venezuela. They were in a drought. Aruba and, yeah. Aruba um, and Curacao. Yeah. And Curacao. Yeah. The islands were in a drought. They're an island in the middle of the Caribbean because they got no fresh water, no rain. Hmm. Think about that for a minute. So all these things are piling up on us and people are going, well, what's happening? Why is my electricity bill so high? Uh, because of that. Why, why, why is it that, that I can't drive my internal combustion car? Uh, because of that. And, and, and all I'm saying is, I believe in science. I will stick with science. And with science, we can solve all of this in a, in a, in a heartbeat. It's just financial interests uh, that don't want to. They just don't want to. You know, they, they want to do this. They've got stockholders to keep happy. And so here's what I'm saying. You know, you guys, you stockholder guys, you're going to be real happy. But you know what? You're going to be gassing up on the Katy Freeway. And you're going to be wearing an oxygen mask because you won't be able to breathe. Mm. So good luck.
Anyway, that's the way I feel about it. Good. Sorry. <laughs> no. Good, good place to end. And and I know you got a uh, nine o'clock show too. So yeah. uh, I, I want to respect your time. So, so Linda, next time don't be so quiet. Hmm? Well, I just, I, I didn't, yeah, Jeff. I didn't get a, I didn't get an in there. I didn't get an inroad. Why didn't you say anything? I, this is why I'm not. I, this is why I'm not in broadcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got to be rude. You got to step in and say, "But wait a minute. What about that?" Well, I'm happy. You know, well, you I, guys have, think, I do have one question before we go. Yes, what do, What do you think about AI and broadcast? Well, it's it's very scary. Uh, AI. Uh, we all, already had meetings. Uh, and they gave us the following uh, parameters, you know, how can we use it? And they said, you can use it for research, but you cannot go to air with it because it has to go through your brain. Uh, so we are using it for uh, because it's an ultimate it's a it's an ultimate library of everything that ever existed. So if I have a question mark, if I want to clean up my uh, copy, uh, it's being used. But you know as well as I, the days are going to come when AI is going to be writing songs. Uh, AI is going to be writing books. AI is going to be, uh, you know, Max Headroom, the anchorman. And human beings are going to fall by the wayside. And when that repository of knowledge and information gets larger and larger and larger, you know, we go back to uh, you know, Star Trek days where we're going, when does it start thinking for itself? Or when does it refuse to think for it for you? Uh, you know, I mean, it's, 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 uh, now I, I used to be a big fan of Elon Musk. All right. I, I'm still a big fan of Elon Musk, but he's ringing the alarm bell going, guys, you got to establish the rules now. Because if you don't, if you go on an unregulated medium, the science is going to get so far ahead of us in the technology that we're not even going to know how to control it uh, in the next year or two that fast that it's developing. So we are using it cautiously uh, for research and for news content, but we cannot go to air with whatever it says because it has to go through our brain. And, uh, and I don't think you'd want uh, AI just spitting out facts for you and you're going, did anybody read this before you read it? No, we can't. We can't be there. So, AI is the next thing. AI, you, you know, you saw that recent movie uh, on Oppenheimer, right? Yeah. Oh, That's I no, this... I have not. But oh, yeah, you haven't I, seen I, it? I, I heard of it. Yeah, I haven't seen it. Yeah, Jeff, did you see it? I have not seen it. No. Oh, you have to see it. And, and without giving the movie away, well, you know what happened. After, the, the whole premise of the movie is they were being challenged. Can we do it? Can we do it? Yes, we can do it. We can take a molecule and an atom and we can split it and we can this and we can give it with heavy water. And, and then one day they did it. They had an explosion and they said to themselves, oh, damn, we did it. Now, in the movie, you'll see how Einstein is telling Oppenheimer who's really kind of the, the new kid on the block. Einstein was the old kid on the block going, be careful with this rubber. You know, we, we're not going to be able to pull back. So the whole premise of the film is the day that we opened the, the nuclear gene is the day that the life, life changed on this planet. And that's the same thing with AI. We opened the genie on AI. And if we're not cautious with it, it's going to get ahead of us. Um, 
You know, I, I remember the day when uh, Mikhail Gorbachev offered to Ronald Reagan, hey, we're going to get rid of all of these nuclear warheads. We don't need 20,000 each. And you go, you're right. We don't need, we need five. And then we're done. Um, so that was the beginning of the end of the, 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 the bringing back of all the nuclear weapons that were proliferating around the planet. Uh, but still, you, you, you remember the guy named Daniel Ellsworth? Sounds familiar. Okay. Okay. Uh, not, not your generation, my generation. Daniel Ellsworth was a, um, uh, worked in a think tank as a researcher and as a writer. And, and he's famous because he released the Pentagon Papers. And you're going, well, what kind of American is he if he's going to release secret uh, documents that belong to the government? What Throw him in jail, you know? And they did. They threw him in jail and he finally got out. But you, nobody remembers what he was telling us. He was telling us that the military wanted to create a plan to determine how many nuclear warheads it would take to win a battle. That's how stupid they were. They thought that by dropping 10 bombs or 20 bombs, we would take out Russia and we would be fine. So Daniel Ellsworth, releasing the Pentagon, was trying to tell us, these guys are nuts. They haven't studied science. They don't know that one nuclear bomb could ruin the entire planet, depending on how big they make it. And so we're there at that cross, cross uh, fork in the road with AI that if we don't control it, it's going to control us. So, I mean, these are, remember, this is not nature anymore. This is human beings acting in irresponsible ways. Now you've got to say, well, we need a bomb to control Russia. Yeah, okay. But do you realize that what you've invented could ruin the whole planet? Uh, you know, because remember, um, um, uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki were kilotons of dynamite. The, the, the subsequent bombs were in megatons of, of explosive power. So we already can blow the whole planet to shit, pardon me. Um, <laughs> Good catch. Uh, it would blow the planet up and life would be not livable. The world would be unhappy. I mean, I remember, you know, I read Carl Sagan big time. And before him, there was a guy named Barry Commoner. And before him was a Rachel, uh, uh, the lady named Rachel, uh, who were telling us, guys, you know, uh, we're, we're really getting far ahead of ourselves here. Um, so, so, you know, I mean, Carl Sagan warned us of the nuclear winter that we may have if we start doing this. And Ellsworth was telling everybody that these guys are, they just want to know how many, they just want to know how many. And he had to do all the calculations of how many megatons would blow this and how much would blow that. And, and that's what he was supposed to be writing. And he said, I'm going to write this. I'm going to tell the body that these guys are crazy. And that's what he was trying to do. So when uh, Dr. Hansen went before Congress and told him that climate change is coming, and then the United Nations developed the, the IPCC, which was a great idea, 300 of the best scientists around the world con collaborating, contributing to one 
product that we can read. And now we make fun of them because ah, oh, they, they probably use a calculator on that. And they got it wrong. I'm going, no, they didn't get it wrong. Everything that Dr. Hansen warned us about is happening. Everything that Ravel told us is happening. Everything that, well, the guys at, at, um, at Scripps, uh, Scripps Institute of Oceanography in La Jolla, California, had done a lot of reports. I read them. They sent them to me and to look, tell somebody about this. So I'm going, wow. So, you know, I, I, the earth is going, is salvageable, but we have to act now. We have to do something now. And, and I'm sorry that, that, you know, I own Exxon stock myself, you know, and, and if Exxon doesn't diversify into geothermal, ocean, wind, and solar, and insists on we're going down this path of only fossil fuel, we're going to be toast. So I worry about the future. I worry about our air. Imagine the pollution in Houston. Imagine a week when the wind doesn't blow. Imagine what you're going to be doing. You know, you won't be able to breathe. So go ahead. No, I, I was going to, no, I was going to end on this question. Okay. It's, it's a binary answer. Yes or no. <laughs> I, I, okay. But okay. You go, you go first. Well, my, my last question was going to be, what's your most memorable weather event in all of, in all of the places? Beautiful. You know, you, you've worked in a lot of places in Texas yeah. and California. Yeah. You've, you've, I've imagined you've seen some significant events. Well, the, the, um, 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 the most imaginable weather event, I wasn't covering it because it was Hurricane Beulah in 67 because I was living in the valley. I was in high school and it came through the valley and it flooded half, you know, the Rio Grande got 27 inches of rain and it flooded out of its banks for a mile and a half. So my town, uh, you know, flooded out. Um, I saw in reality, there's a young man and it's very impressionable. And I spent uh, two weeks uh, working with the Explorer Scouts, uh, you know, building hospitals and, and helping uh, refugees and helping people whose homes had been blown away. So from then on, it, that's what kind of said, "Whoa, this is important, you know, and, and we need to understand this, um, this whole concept. And so probably that formed in my head uh, weather uh, because dad had always, dad was a farmer. And so he always would look at noon. He would go out and look at the clouds. And I said, what are you looking at? The clouds. So, well, if they get big, it rains. If they stay little, it doesn't rain. So he's talking about vertical movement of a cloud to, to, to hit your the level of, of a free level of condensation and all that stuff. He was looking for the clouds to build. And because, you know, no rain, no crop. So it was, uh, you know, all, all of those things sort of touched me. Of course, you know, now it's really bad, Scott. Whenever there's a hurricane like Harvey, I stayed in the studio for four days. I didn't get to go out and cover the story because I had to be there telling people what's going to happen next, predicting the future how to stay safe, how to, which roads to get off of, where the flooding is, where all this is. So now, you know, we sort of, uh, I succeeded to, out of a, a hurricane chaser mentality and into having to be in the studio. But those are the things that just sort of build up over your life. But yeah, I mean, I, I've, 
I know Western weather very well, all of the mountains and the West Coast, and I know the Gulf very well. I don't know the the the, the Northeast, but uh, I, I can certainly do what's happening down here. So, hey, I, I appreciate what you guys are doing and the time to do this. Give me your binary question. All right. You know me, I'm, and, I'm pretty and, frank. Oh, I know. So a uh, perfect segue to that last little bit, what you were saying. Will AI ever replace the broadcast meteorologist? I think there's that potential and I'm worried about it. I, I hate to use this cop out. Yeah, it might, but I'll be dead. Mm. Uh, to me, that's a cop out. I don't want to go there. I don't think that a computerized AI person, machine, should do weather, just like I don't think that they should replace us. So no, I want to stop right there. That's it. No weathermen robots, okay? Stop it. Perfect. Mac, thank you very much for being on Weather Insights. Really enjoyed the conversation. Great, uh, great stuff. As Tell me when you want to chat again. I, I love chatting about it. <laughs> Absolutely. We will definitely do that. And hey, I'll see you tomorrow. You got it, man. See you then. All right. All right. Take care. Thank you. See you. Thank you. Bye.